Good morning. Good morning. And let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we again are so thankful that you are our Father. We're so thankful for the way you have created and built your universe to operate for Jesus and for all that he has done for us. And we ask that your spirit will uh, join us this morning, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, give us discernment and give us effectiveness in presenting this final message of mercy to the world that, that the, those who have never really heard it and are being confused by all the things that are happening in the world can see the light of heavenly truth and be drawn out of this world into your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Today, we are doing lesson number 12 in the quarterly Making Friends for God, and the title is A Message Worth Sharing. What is the message worth sharing today? The memory text for today is Revelation 16, excuse me, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. This is from the New King James Version, and it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and spring of waters. And then I want to read the first paragraph. The first paragraph right below that in the lesson says, Christ's atoning death was universal. That is, it was meant for all. And I want you to, as you hear this paragraph, be thinking, um, a message worth sharing. Is this articulating what you believe is the method, message worth sharing? So Christ's atoning death was universal. That is, it was meant for all people who have ever lived, regardless of when or where. Thus, the gospel speaks to people of every language group, culture, and background. It brings, it bridges ethnic divides. It is the incredible good news that Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell. The gospel is all about Jesus. He died for us and now lives for us. He came once to deliver us from the penalty and power of sin and is coming again to deliver us from the presence of sin. He died the death we deserve so that we can live the life he deserves. In Christ, we are justified, sanctified, and one day glorified. When you hear that, is that, do you hear, that's the message. That's it. That's the message we're sharing. And if so, well, I, I guess I should affirm that absolutely it centers on Jesus. Absolutely Jesus is the key. He is God's solution to the sin problem. Jesus is our Savior. The on, and only through Jesus do we achieve salvation. That, there's no question. We affirm that completely. Let's affirm our thankfulness to God for Jesus and what he's done for us. But having affirmed all that, does this paragraph sum up what you believe is the message for this time in human history? And if so, how is it different, what you read here, what we read here, different from any other evangelical or Protestant group? I didn't read one thing here that isn't being taught in every evangelical church or Protestant church out there today. Do we have anything different to share? Is there anything special that we have that's, that's important that we share at this time in earth history? Or is this the message? And if so, do you see my point? I don't disagree with anything in the paragraph. I don't disagree with it. I just find it both inadequate and incomplete. That's all. It's not wrong. It's just incomplete. And what it leaves out is the central, most important elements that Jesus came to expose and resolve. And in addition, does it leave out the most central, important element that Jesus came to expose and resolve? It simultaneously words it in such a way that while it's not wrong... I want to say that again because people will think I'm, I'm saying it's wrong. It's not wrong. The, the wording lends itself to too easily support the lies of Babylon. So the key in the final message of mercy actually neglects what the memory verse points out in Revelation 14. And the memory verse in Revelation 14 points us to the key that exposes the lie of Satan's rebellion. We are to worship who according to the memory verse? Him who did what? Him, the creator. Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. And when the creator builds space, time, energy, matter, and life, what kind of laws does that operate upon? These are design laws. These are the laws upon which reality exists. And this is the key. 
as long as we present any other truth through the lens of human law constructs, that God's law works like our law, system of rules made up that he then legislatively or legally or judicially enforces with inflictions of punishments. This is how human systems work. As long as we present all of this stuff in the paragraph through that law lens, we're presenting the lies of Satan. Can I say it any more plainly? And I'm going to expose it to you here in a moment with some historic quotes from the Adventist church. Uh, You got your hand up, Karen. Okay. So let's look at some historic quotes. First one's out of something called Patriarchs and Prophets, page 33. The history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it first began in heaven. Now this is the, 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 the foundation of what the Adventist church was supposed to be taking to the world. What, what, what Adventist, the Adventist church continues to hold to this idea that they have a unique message for the end time that the rest of the Protestant churches don't have that, that is to prepare people to meet Christ. That, that's the, the premise of Adventism. That's why it's, uh, it's called the Adventist church, looking for the Advent, preparing people to meet Jesus. Okay. Yet, what's in this paragraph is the same exact theology taught in essentially every Protestant evangelical church because they're missing, they've, they've left in history the key elements that are to take these beautiful truths and set them in their proper setting so that we actually have a real applicable experience in our own lives. Let's let's go to this quote. This is what we're supposed to be teaching. The history of the great conflict between good and evil from the time it first began in heaven to the final overthrow of rebellion and the total eradication of sin. What's in between this? From the opening to the closing, everything, okay, is also a demonstration of God's unchanging love. What's the issue? What you said, God's character of love, his methods of love, his law of love. And the final message of mercy, I'll have that quote a little later, is the truth about God's character of love. And love only exists in what kind of an atmosphere? Freedom. You cannot get love from a robot or a puppet. You can't. You can't get love by threatening to kill people who don't love who don't love you. It will destroy it. Only in freedom does love exist. Satan's system, Satan's government, Satan's method, Satan's laws always erode liberty. Because his government is based on made-up rules like our governments are that require external oversight and the enforcement of punishment, not conversion of hearts. Inflictions of punishments, in other words, restricting liberty. Thus, Satan's method always destroys love. And this is the great lie in Christianity. That God... Runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. He makes up his rules. He's put them on stone. There's no reason to do it other than the creator said to do it. It's not how reality actually works. It's not built into the very fabric of of uh, the universe. No, no, no. It's a rule like we make up. And God is monitoring. He has his recording angels. He follows you everywhere. He keeps a demerit list of all the bad things you've done. And you will have to be punished accordingly for those things. This view of God destroys love. And it's Satan's view of God. Let's keep reading the quote. The sovereign of the universe was not alone in his work of beneficence. Pause. What's another word for beneficence? Giving. Giving. Other-centeredness. Sharing. Love. That's what beneficence is. Looking out for the best interest to benefit others. It's outward looking. It's the principles of love. Altruism is another word. And why was he not alone? It's very, it's very important you understand this. Because love functionally cannot function in a singularity, in isolation. Love requires an other to share with, to give to, to sacrifice for. Without an other, love doesn't function okay the arguments that are circulating 
that against the Trinity are another attack against God's character of love. Listen to what actually comes next. This is, again, historic position that the Adventist church was to take forward. He had an associate, a co-worker who could appreciate his purposes and could share in his joy in giving happiness to created beings. Who is able to know the mind of God? Who can enter into infinity? Who can share in the purposes of God, into the full purposes of God? Only one who is equal with God. So continuing on with the quote, and this starts to quote some scripture. This is quoting, this quote is quoting, okay? First John 1, excuse me, John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's John 1, 1 and 2. Christ, the word, the only begotten of God, was with the eternal father, one in nature, in character, in purpose, the only being that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. Now, another Bible quote, Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Whose name is this? Jesus, the Son. He has all the attributes Name means character qualities. He has the character qualities of the Father. The mighty God, the everlasting God, the Prince of Peace. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5, 2. Going forth from everlasting, from eternity past, before time existed. Why? Because he's fully God. Satan has been attacking the position of Christ from the beginning, and the theories that Jesus is not fully God is part of Satan's attack. It undermines the character of God. Continuing on with the quote. The Father wrought by his Son in the creation of all heavenly beings. By him all things were created, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Colossians 1.16. Jesus is the Creator, the agency through which the Father carried out his plans for creation. And only God can create. Satan can't create. You and I can't create from nothing. We can't speak things into existence. Continuing on with the quote, the law of love being the foundation of the government of God. The happiness of all intelligent beings depend upon their perfect accord with its great principles of righteousness. Well, why? Why do I have to love in order to be happy? That seems kind of arbitrary. That doesn't seem fair. I should be able to hate people and be happy. I should be able to exploit people and be happy. I should be able to be jealous and envious and have happiness. That's not fair. I shouldn't have to love to have happiness, should I? The reason it's required is for the same reason someone might say the law requires that you breathe to have life or health or happiness. I promise you, if you get waterboarded, while you're being waterboarded, you won't be happy. There's no happiness in that. You're being suffocated. You ever had that sensation of suffocation? Where you, 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 whatever reason you were underwater too long, or somebody was, uh, as a kid on a playground, a bunch of kids uh, playing football, and they pile on, and they, and you for a minute you can't breathe. Are you happy in that moment? No, only in harmony with God's laws, how He designed life is their happiness. That's all. There's no arbitrary rule. Continue on with the quote. God desires from all His creatures the service of love. Service that springs from an appreciation of his character. He takes no pleasure in forced obedience. Notice that statement, no pleasure. Think that through. No pleasure. It's not that he couldn't force obedience. He is the infinite God. He could. But he takes no pleasure in it. Pleasure. Why? Because forced obedience destroys love. It incites rebellion. It destroys individuality. It destroys creativity. It causes pain. It causes suffering. It causes misery. It causes unhappiness. And if the people that you love are being destroyed by the action, will you have pleasure in it? This is not some arbitrary willy-nilly. It's how reality works. If God were to use power to force obedience, he would be miserable himself because all of his children that he loves are being destroyed by the process. But this is exactly what billions of Christians believe and teach. 
that God will use his power to inflict pain and suffering and death on those who don't love him. It's what billions teach. Can you go on with the quote? He takes no pleasure in forced obedience, and to all he grants freedom of will that they may render him voluntary service. Are you hearing right now, before we even go on, are you hearing a message that is different than the evangelical and Protestant churches teach? A perspective of God's methods, his designs, his, his, his creation, his, his motives, his actions that are not imperial, that are not authoritarian, that are not inflicting of punishment, that are not penal legal. And that foundational method changes everything on how we understand the, quote, atoning death. Gives all freedom. Why? Because only in freedom is there love. And understand that to the degree we as humans can create safe atmospheres where people are able to be free, that fosters creativity. It fosters ingenuity. It fosters development. It fosters advancement. And to the degree you restrict autonomy and liberty, you crush the human spirit and the human ability, and you create shadows and shells. Just look at human history. Look at governments who have created more liberty for their people. Look at governments who have restricted the liberty and see what happens to the people and to those societies. That was the end of that quote. Here's a new quote. This is from Second Selected Messages, page 107. Satan has been persevering and untiring in his efforts to prosecute the work he began in heaven. Prosecute the work he began in heaven. Uh, what work do you think he began in heaven? Well, of course, the war with God over God's character. Well, what kind of war? War of ideas, war of words, war of concepts. Uh, but what's the root strategy? Lies. lies. Lies are the method. That's right. And the lies about he's, God and the character of his law. Satan has been constantly working to get intelligent beings to believe that uh, that God's law functions like human law. And once you believe that, you no longer trust him. He's the source of inflicted pain you must be pun- protected from. Uh, can you go on with the quote? Satan is, start, start with the sentence because I, I, I broke it mid-sentence. Satan has been persevering and untiring in his efforts to prosecute the war he began in heaven to change the law of God. That's his war. To change the law of God. Satan achieves his goal when he gets what? What is the achievement of his goal? Can he actually change God's laws? God's laws are design laws. He can't change the law of gravity or physics any more than you and I can. So how does he achieve his goal? Does he actually change the law or what does he, what does he change? The perception of intelligent beings of the type of law. So as soon as the intelligent beings accept the lie that God merely makes up rules like we make up rules, that God's law functions like imposed imperial law, then in the minds of beings, he has broken them away from loyalty to God and brought them into rebellion onto his side. That's the whole deal. Continue on with the quote. Satan has succeeded in making the world believe the theory he presented in heaven before his fall that the law of God was faulty and needed revising. (laughs) How can we say this more plainly? What kind of law can you amend and revise? What type of law? Can we amend and revise the laws of physics? Or the laws of health. Can we say, oh, let's pass in, in, uh, in church board. And we know when the church meets in, maybe we'll wait for general conference. Because we know when the church meets in general conference session and votes something, they're speaking with the voice of God. So let's wait for the general conference. And then let's, and let's get us to vote in general conference that Adventist, anybody in the church, will not be harmed from cigarette smoke. Or from pollution. <laughs> Or from pollution. Is there, is, there, is there a motion, a second? Okay, and now we vote that. Have we actually changed anything about the laws of health? No, you can't change design laws. It doesn't matter what we vote. Satan can't change design laws. So this idea 
that he succeeded in making the world believe his theory that he presented in heaven, that God's laws are changeable, which means he gets us to believe that God's laws function like our laws, simply rules that he makes up. Now, whether God changes them or not, that's, that's, that's what you hear. But God would never change because he's the same yesterday, so he will never change his rules. He's perfect and he's perfect for it, so he only makes the perfect rules up to start with. Do you see, those types of arguments miss the entire point. It's not about whether God changes or doesn't change. It's about what type of law does he utilize in the governance of his universe. And again, when he was making this argument, there was no written law. You know what I mean? What, what was he arguing against? He wasn't arguing against tablets of stone. That's exactly right. So the only kind of law that can be revised is the legislated human made-up rule type law. God doesn't operate that way. Continuing on. I have to read that sentence again, and I'll just continue into the next sentence. He has succeeded in making the world believe the theory he presented in heaven before his fall that the law of God was faulty and needed revising. A large part of the professed Christian church, by their attitude, if not by their words, show that they have accepted the same error. See, this is my question. What we read in this first paragraph, how is it different than the rest of the Christian world, especially the Protestant world? It isn't if it's presented through the law, the lens of human law. Then we're still distorting God's character. The Adventist church was called to present the truth about the creator and how he built reality to operate and how his laws are design protocols. And then everything else, every other doctrine shifts And the character of God suddenly, and I'm going to go through a whole bunch of those in a moment. Let's continue on with the quote. A large part of the professed Christian world, by their attitude and their words, show that they have accepted the same error. But if one jot or tittle the law had been changed, Satan had gained on earth what he could not gain in heaven. But as Jesus said, if you change one jot, or tittle the law, then the universe as we know it wouldn't exist anymore. Heaven would, heaven and earth would cease and pass away. Because life as God constructed it would not operate in a universe with different physical and other design parameters. So it would destroy everything. Satan has prepared his delusive snare. Delusive means delusional which means fixed false belief, believing in something as if it's true when it's false and you're fixed in it and can't be shaken out of it. How many people in the Christian world, much less the world as a whole, are delusional when it comes to God's law? They're absolutely convinced. How many pastors in the churches you attend are absolutely convinced that God is the invoker of rules that work like ours and the enforcer? They're delusional. It's not how the universe actually runs. But going on with the quote still. But not all will take the, take, be taken in the snare. Who won't be snared? Those who reject the imposed law view and embrace design law. And that's the true message of the three angels. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth. A line of distinction is to be drawn between the children of obedience and the children of disobedience, the loyal and true, and the disloyal and untrue. Two great parties are developed. The worshipers of the beast and his image and the worshipers of the true and living God. Two great parties. I'm going to tell you, it's not the Democrat and Republican parties. It's not the two parties. You're going to discover that they're going to both practice the methods of the beast. They're both going to practice the methods of coercion, the methods of force, the methods of imprisonment, the methods of of, of punishment. They're both, left or right, they're both going to practice the methods. The godly people are going to practice God's method. Present the truth in love, leave people free. We don't coerce, we don't force. And then with all that in mind, here is a couple more short quotes. Great Controversy 582. The last conflict, the last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle, we are now entering a battle between the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah. Men make up rules. God builds reality. Between the religion of the Bible 
paganism with a God who punishes, who must be appeased, and the, re- uh, uh, the religion of the Bible, excuse me, not the religion of the pagan, but, no, I got that backwards. The religion of the Bible and the religion of fable and tradition. The fable and tradition is the paganism, God who must be appeased, versus the religion of the Bible, which is the truth that God shall love the world that he sent his only begotten son. And then Prophets and Kings 625, another short quote. There is no such thing as weakening or strengthening the law of Jehovah. Can you weaken or strengthen the law of gravity? It just is. The law of Jehovah cannot be weakened or strengthened. It just is. As it has been, so it is. It always has been and always will be. What kind of law is that? Holy, just, and good, complete in itself. It cannot be repealed or changed. Remember Satan's allegation has started in heaven? God's law needs to be revised. See, a different type of law. God's law cannot be repealed or changed because it's the protocols upon which reality is built to operate that ultimately emanate from the very character of God, which is love. Between the the laws of men and the precepts of Jehovah will come the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error. Upon this battle we are now entering, a battle not between rival churches... Did you hear that? How much of your upbringing has been focused on a battle between churches over doctrines? It is not that battle. Not a battle between rival churches contending for supremacy, but between the religion of the Bible and the religion of fables and tradition. It comes down to, do we worship the creator who built reality, operated on design law, principles of love, truth, liberty, and do we internalize those, have that law written on our hearts and minds and become an operating principle for our characters, or do we embrace the beastly system of right and wrong based on rules, and it's not fair, and we have to punish those, and justice is, is making sure they get their just desserts. Uh, so, sin is transgression of the law, but I want to walk you through that the difference in what we heard in this paragraph from impose law, what it means under imposed law lens versus design law lens. Transgression of the law, under imposed law, sin is being in legal trouble. I broke rules. I'm in legal trouble. The law requires some punishment be, be made. That, that's, that's, that's my problem. Under design law, sin is having a terminal condition. I'm sick. I'm sin sick in heart. There's something wrong with me. I'm, I'm full, filled with fear and self-centeredness. Imposed law, God is required by law to punish sin. Under design law, God is required by his law and his character of love to save sinners. Required. Love cannot sit still. If you love your child and you see them drowning because they disobeyed you and they went out into the swimming pool when you told them not to, they are a disobedient child, but they're drowning. If you love them, what is the just action for you to take? The right thing to do. Save them. In that paragraph you first read, there's, there's that passage that says that humans are deserving of death. Yes. That, that language there right, automatically tells you that the author believes that there's an imposed law. Because oh, in this one over here. The original yes. paragraph, yes. deserving of death. Yes, yes. Is the child that is drowning in a swimming pool, does he deserve death? If he, he disobeyed you? Not, not for the disobedience, but if. But for if unremedied, he will die. He deserves death if he doesn't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on where you're putting that deserving, doesn't it? Okay. G- uh, under the imposed law, Jesus died. His death was to pay the legal penalty. Take the sins upon him and be punished and pay the penalty. Under design law, Jesus died to become our remedy, to fix the problem. Under imposed law... God killed Jesus in our place. All sins were placed on him, and I can give you, if if, if many of you go, I've never heard that before, I can give you quote after quote in Christian literature that God was required by justice to put all the sins on Jesus, and he punished Jesus in our place, killing Jesus on the cross. That's paganism. It's completely fraud. Under design law, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to be our savior. Under imposed law, salvation is claiming a legal solution of the blood of Jesus to appease the wrath of the Father and adjust your accounting records in heaven. Under design law, salvation is accepting the truth Jesus revealed about God, opening your heart 
in trust to him, receiving via the Holy Spirit the mind of Christ, a new heart and right spirit being reborn, being transformed or regenerated into godliness. That's salvation, healing, the damage. Under the imposed law of you, atonement is legal payment. It's, it's, it's taking the punishment. Under the design law, atonement is at one meant actually bringing the party who was alienated back into unity or oneness with God. So when Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray they be one that we are one, that's what he's talking about, that, that one meant. Under imposed law, the gospel or good news is what we read here. It was so lended itself to this, this false view. Uh, is Jesus died to propitiate God and atone for our sin. That's the good news. It's all about Jesus taking the punishment and paying the penalty. But under the design law, the good news is what Wendell said. The eternal gospel, eternally good in eternity past, is the good news about God himself, that God is not like Satan has made him out to be, and his law is not imperial or imposed. Under the imposed law, the final message is perverted to be a legal issue of right days or right rituals or right claims of legal salvation and right applications of blood in the right records during the right investigations during the right judgments. That's the perversion under the imposed law view. Under the design law view, the final message of mercy is about God's character of love that wins us to trust and sets his law and his character in its right setting in the hearts and minds and dispels the distortions of Satan from the minds of people. Here's what one of the founders of the SDA Church wrote in the book Christ Object Lessons 415. It is the darkness of misapprehension about God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shared the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love, which is only revealed when you understand his design law of love, how life actually works. So if you connect the previous quotes that we just read about the final battle is the culmination of the original battle over the law of God in heaven, connect that with this quote that the final message of mercy is a revelation of God's character of love. Do you see how that Satan has rooted his war in an imperial legal lie about God, teaching people that justice is, is, is achieving the right doctrines or getting the right rituals or finding the right rules, doing the right behavior, claiming the right payment, but certainly not experiencing the right heart. The first angel's message calls us to reject this lie about God, to return to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, to give glory to him because we're in awe of him. Be in awe of God. Give glory to him for the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about him. See, when you read that, fear God and glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. If you have the imposed law, what that means is the hour that he ha- opens his tribunal, that he sits and brings out his judicial robes, that he's going over records, he's making rulings. That's not what it means at all. It means the hour in human history has finally come when, when this message is, is to go forward from a people about the eternal gospel and God's design so that people can reject the dark ages imperial dictator God who makes up rules and punishes you and embrace the creator who wants to heal you. That's the message. Make a right judgment about God. So um, from the remedy, uh, Revelation 14, 6, and 7. Then I saw another messenger flying in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone on earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people, which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear and resounding voice, be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love because the hour has come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who has made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and spring of water, all of which operate upon his law of love. Okay, Sunday's lesson. 
Any questions about that? Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. says, throughout salvation history, God has regularly sent a special message through the prophetic word to prepare people for what is coming. God is never caught off guard. He prepares his people for the future by sending prophets to reveal his message before the judgment falls. Before the judgment falls. In the days of Noah, before the flood, God sent a message to the world through Noah that the flood was coming. In Egypt, God raised up Joseph to prepare for the famine during the seven years of plenty. The Jewish prophets warned the Israelite leaders of the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian armies. John the Baptist's message was repentance, uh, of repentance prepared the world for the first coming of Jesus. What do you think of the use of the word judgment here? He prepares his people for the future by sending prophets to reveal his message before the judgment falls. It is a correct use of the word, but it lends itself again to be too easily understood in the human law mindset. In the human law mindset, what does judgment sound like? It sounds like a judicial process, that God has some line of total number of bad deeds a person or a nation or a group till their iniquity, till the, the bad stuff they've done has reached a tally that God has somehow drawn a line on. And then when they meet that threshold, then God judges it's time to act to punish all the badness. And so before he does that, he sends a warning that you're getting near. You've got, I told you, you, you had uh, 101, and you're at 99. If you do two more bad things, then judgment's coming. Uh, don't do it, don't do it. Does it ever sound like that to you growing up? Is it, 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 this is not how reality works, though. This is a lie. This is a gross distortion. It misrepresents God. It is true that God is never caught off guard. That's true. And it's true that God sends warning to his people, no doubt about that. But again, the authors don't seem to incorporate into their explanation the two key pieces of reality that illuminate events quite clearly. And those pieces of reality are, one, God's design law, and two, the great controversy in which after Adam fell, the entire Old Testament key piece, always keep in mind, is Genesis 3, after Adam falls, The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent. That's the key. Messiah's coming. Without Messiah, human race is gone. The entire human race is gone without Jesus. So the entire Old Testament is, through the uh, lens of design law, is the battle between God's plan to bring Jesus to save the species human and Satan working to stop God's plan. That's the Old Testament. And that's why the focus is where the focus is. That's why after the flood, the flood is the whole world. We're focusing on the whole world before the flood. Because we don't know through which human branch of the family, uh, family branch, uh, that, that Messiah is coming. After the flood, it immediately, very quick, within a couple chapters, boom, we're now focusing on Abraham's family. And then we're not just focusing on Abraham's family. We're focusing on Isaac's family. And we're not just focusing on Isaac's family, we're focusing on Jacob's family. We narrow our focus down because the whole purpose of the story and the, and the inspired record is to enlighten us on the coming Messiah and the battle. That's why we don't have anything about the Chinese culture in Scripture. It's not because God doesn't love the Chinese and that salvation isn't for them, but Messiah wasn't coming through that branch of the family. Yes. It also explains why he doesn't send messages about other catastrophes that happen in the world. It, yeah, this was all about this issue. That's right. It's all about this issue. So understanding those two key, key pieces, God's design law, great controversy, focused on the coming Messiah and Satan trying to stop it. With these truths in mind, the whole Testament record of God is, is God working. Satan trying to, And we can see that God's judgments then are not judicial but therapeutic. Like a doctor who assesses a circumstance, an illness, a patient with symptoms, and makes a judgment. What's actually wrong? That's not the only judgment the doctor makes. The doctor makes another judgment of multiple possibilities. In my judgment, what's the best solution? What's going to get the patient well the quickest? What's going to hurt them the least? 
And God's judgments in Bible times are consistently and constantly God assessing the necrosis of sin and how it's spreading through the human species and then judging what actions he needs to take to maintain the avenue for the Messiah and what actions he needs to take to save the most people. This is what you constantly have. That's what the whole story is. And he sends warnings of the dangers of deviating from his laws. What's going to happen? Like a doctor warning the patients of a person who, of a patient who won't stop smoking. What confuses people is when they confuse the first death and the second death. That first death, which is a sleep death, with the second death, which is non-existent annihilation. Only God caused the second death death. That's the wages of sin. No longer existing. God does not call first death death. He calls it sleep. In fact, Jesus said, those who believe in him, though they die, they will never die. Though they sleep, they will never die. Though they sleep, they will never die. He said specifically to the, little, to, the, to the mourners about the little girl, Jesus said, she's not dead. They laughed at him. When you confuse first and second death, then you look at God's actions in Old Testament times and you think God kills people. No, he doesn't. God may put some people to sleep, like at the time of the flood or the firstborn of Egypt, or the platoons that came to arrest Elijah. But they're not dead. They're just in suspended animation. The pause button on their life has been hit, and they will be awakened to continue their life in one of two resurrections. I want to share a little section out of the Remedy Genesis about this process. This is Genesis 6, starting verse 5. The Lord saw how human beings, by choosing to indulge selfishness, had completely corrupted themselves destroying in themselves his design of love and how their every desire was totally selfish and their hearts sought evil all the time. The Lord grieved at their suffering and his heart ached over humanity's terminal condition. He also grieved at the action his love must take in order to slow the spread of sin and to keep open the avenue for the Messiah to come and to save the human species. So the Lord pronounced his therapeutic plan, I will remove the malignant malignantly selfish human beings from the face of the earth that I have made. I will remove humans and animals, both large and small, and the birds of the air. Having to do this grieves me, for I have created them. But the Lord was pleased that he had a friend in Noah. The earth, created by God to operate upon the principle of love, the circle of giving, was being destroyed by the grossest violence and exploitation. God saw how fear and selfishness had spread throughout the earth, corrupting all living creatures, for all living things were violent and sought to dominate and destroy each other. So God pronounced his healing plan to Noah. It has come before me that if I don't act, then all life on earth will end, because the earth is being destroyed by constant violence and exploitation. I am going to stop this cycle of violence and put an end to the, to the living creatures and change the earth to slow down future corruption. Understand that I must act to save humanity, to keep open the avenue for Messiah and slow the spread of sin. I'm going to bring waters to flood the earth, and all creatures living upon it are going to die, and the face of the earth will be changed. So what is God's judgment? You've done bad stuff. You broke my rules. You didn't get the right payment. I'm required by law to kill you. Or you're killing yourselves. You're out of harmony with how life works. You're all going to die if I don't do something. I love you too much. I can't let that happen. I'll put some of you asleep so I can keep open the avenue for my son to come and fix the problem and provide a solution for you. Second paragraph. The message of eternal significance for the first century was Christ had come. The Father's love was revealed through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Although the wages of sin is death, through Christ, eternal life has been secured for all. It is our choice whether by faith we receive it. This message of salvation in Jesus will never be out of date. It is present truth for every generation. What is the message of present truth for today? It is absolutely true. Salvation is only in Jesus. Absolutely true. That's critical. No question about it. Do we present it any different than the Roman church? The Protestant evangelical churches? Do we have anything to say about salvation in Jesus that is unique and special for today? Can you tell me what you have to say about Jesus and salvation in him that people need to hear today? 
Have I put you all to sleep? This is out of uh, uh, CSA. I can't remember what that acronym stands for. Page 46. It says, God intends that heaven, that God intends that even in this life, the truth of his word shall ever be unfolding to his people. Why will the truth ever be unfolding? Why? Because God is infinite and we are finite. Even in eternity future, without sin and the earth made new, do we become God? No. There's an infinite amount. Of, we always continue to advance, always continue to grow. This is why Satan likes to get organizations set up creeds and doctrines and lay down their stakes that these are the things and this is what... And to go beyond that is because it locks people into a certain system of belief where they stop advancing and growing. And that's the law of exertion and the law of worship. If you don't exercise it, if you don't use it, you... So if you stop growing, what do you do? You atrophy. You actually shrink backwards. There is only one way in which knowledge can be obtained. We can attain to an understanding of God's word only through the illumination of that spirit by which the word was given. God desires man to exercise his reasoning powers. Pause. If we are to, if we're on, if we're able to obtain the knowledge only through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, then why do we have to exercise reasoning powers? Don't we just pray for a warm feeling in our bosom from the Spirit to enlighten us to know the truth? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Just pray till the Spirit moves on us and, and enlightens us. Or we get some special message from the Spirit, perhaps in a different language that somebody interprets for us. I mean, if, if, if the truth is only coming from the Spirit, why do we have to use reasoning power? Understand how reality works, folks. Discern. Discern. It's by reasoning we understand it. That's right. What else? But what, what's, where does it lead? What's the consequence to you as an individual? That's the only way we adopt it as ours and it becomes part of, of our individual. That's it. The only way for God to transform you and you still be you is for you to agree be persuaded and internalize into your own heart. You have to think it through and come to you. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind, Romans 14, 5. God has the power to download into you anything he wants if he wanted to do it, but to do that without your willful agreement would be to erase your individuality and write in a robot or some other entity that looks like you, but it's not you anymore. So this is why you must reason and think, so that you can retain your individuality. Again, how reality works. It's integral in our cleansing, according to the text, after which our ministry is named. Right, 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 exactly. But many people, and this is a different, notice what I say, reasoning through, be fully persuaded in your own mind, so that it becomes part of your character, your heart, your value system, because you can know the truth as a fact without valuing it in your heart. Satan and the devils know Jesus is the Messiah, and it scares them. See, knowing the facts, and many people will know Bible facts, the people who crucified Christ, or the, 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 Christian, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, when they asked Herod, where's the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem. They knew. They knew a fact. They knew a Bible truth. But they had not internalized into their heart the very truths of God. And that's the transform. That's what you have to be persuaded. Okay, continue on with another quote. This is um, Christ's Object Lessons 127. In every age, there is a new development of truth. A message of God to the people of that generation. What do you think the message is for us today? I'm convinced it's the truth about God's design law that illuminates him as creator and sets everything new. All the doctrines have always believed are reset in the right setting of God's character of love and his design laws. It's the three angels' message put in its right setting. The old truths are all essential. New truth is not independent of the old, but an unfolding of it. It is only as the old truths are understood that we can comprehend the new. This is a fantastic point, and we in our class do not deny any of the old truths. We don't reject them, we embrace them. But we advance them by putting them in the setting of God's design law. For instance, Christ died as our Savior, and without the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we cannot be saved. That's an old truth. 
but we advance it from the penal legal fraud of paying penalties and pleading blood to an angry, wrathful deity that would hurt us without it to that he was the fullness of God was in Christ. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. That he was carrying out God's plan and purposes to take up humanity, broken off by Adam's sin, and carrying it to completion or, or fixing it and restoring the law of God into the species human and destroying out of humanity, in the humanity that he partook, the infection of fear and selfishness, being tempted in every way just like we are. It's the Bible says yet without sin. And we are tempted when we're dragged away into ties by our own evil desires. That's what the Bible says. Jesus had a humanity that tempted him like ours. Gethsemane, you see the powerful feelings tempting him to save himself. But he overcame those temptations by loving others perfectly, developing a perfect human character. This is achievement. This is healing. This is remedy. This is solution. This isn't legal. The, the old truths are made more beautiful. They're made more relevant. They're when you apply the design law perspective to them, they make more sense. I got pages and pages in the notes today, guys. Is there any questions you all have? Because I have so much I'm not going to get to, and so me just picking something. Is there anything you had in the lesson, any of the days of the weeks you wanted me to be sure to, to, to mention on? So we were just in Sunday. I'm not going to get to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> I got stuff in every day. I can just keep going right through my notes, but there's, there's this... Okay, so I guess I'll do that because we only have about four or five minutes left. It talks about, the, about Jesus' teaching in uh, Monday's lesson. And if you read my blog uh, about three weeks ago on the parables of Jesus, I point out by listing all of his parables and showing from all his parables that every one of his parables reveals, every one of them, design law and exposes the fallacy of imposed law. That's why they hated him over and over again. Every one of them. It's just how reality works, how reality works, how nature works, how, why a seed grows, why it doesn't grow. There is no judicial process. There's no, why, why does the, the leaven cause the bread to rise? Is it because God reviews the, the, the batches of dough and, oh, this one's got leaven in it, so a miraculous thing happens and God rules that that can, and this one didn't, oh, you don't get my miraculous power to make the leaven. No, it's how reality works. Every one of them. A message for God's people. Is there a message for God's people today? I won't read uh, from the remedy. It's in the notes. So let, you should read in, in Revelation chapter uh, 3 to the Laodicean church, starting in 14, from the remedy, and just see what the message is to the Laodicean church. God has a message for us today. What happens to a person who believes they are in legal trouble with a God who will torture them unless they get a substitute to plead to that God or pay that God a blood payment of a human sacrifice so that God won't kill them? What happens to a person who believes and prays those things? There are laws involved, not imposed laws, design laws. Law of worship, by beholding, we become changed. Does, does a system like that bring more peace or more fear? It brings more fear. Perfect love casts out fear. This is Satan's corruption. He has corrupted Christianity, and the Christian world has misrepresented God to the entire world. So the whole world is intoxicated on the wine of Babylon. Whether they've accepted God or rejected him, the reason they've rejected him is because they've, the thinking people in the world have looked at this arbitrary, punitive despot and go, I would rather not believe in God at all than to believe in that thing, which is actually a more rational belief. And so even the agnostics and atheists are, are drunk on the wine of Babylon. Yes, Wendell. On Wednesday's lesson, in the middle of the, the page, it makes a statement which is true in the middle of uh, obedience is the fruit of a saving relationship with Jesus. You have to understand that in the, in the practice of design law. Yeah, so let's read that paragraph. It says, in the age of moral irresponsibility, when millions of people feel that they are accountable to no one but themselves, this judgment hour message, this judgment hour message reminds us that we are responsible for our actions. There's going to be a judgment, folks. You better watch out. There is a relationship between the attitude of reverence for God, obedience to God, and the judgment. Obedience is the fruit of a saving relationship with Jesus. Only his righteousness is good enough to pass the judgment. And in his righteousness, we are secure. Through his righteousness, we live to glorify his name in all that we do. Okay, comments. It just 
That wonderful sentence is in the middle of a whole bunch of fear based on your outlook on what the, the law is like, what the judgment is like. So if we have the imposed law view, what do you hear in this paragraph? Watch out, there's the judge. And, and, and if you don't get punished in this earth, it's okay. God's got a record in heaven, and they'll be in eternity. Now, how many of you heard Christians say, I'm not going to punish you because God can punish you and give you more than I can ever make you pay? Have you heard that kind of stuff? Okay, what kind of law model? They tell, what kind of God are they worshiping? People that are afraid of God. And do you see that this imperial law view contributes to the violence in society and the corruptions of society? Why? Well, because you can think you can get away with it. I can get to do sin and get away with it under this view. There's loopholes. There are exceptions. Uh, I might not get caught. The authorities might not know. Uh, or I might get someone to erase the record of my sin. They might erase the videotape of me doing it. Or the record in heaven might get erased if I get the right person up there to do that for me. Or I might get someone to hide me from the judge and stand between me and the judge and plead my case and be an intercessor and mediate for my cause. Or I might be covered in a robe of someone else's right, right doing or righteousness so when the judge looks at me, he can't see my wickedness. You see? This whole penal legal corruption contributes to the corruption of society. We see it in society today with the violence and rioting happening in various cities and the looting and things that are going on and the murdering because they think they can get away with it because the the authorities are not going to hold them accountable. So I can do it now. I'm not going to be held accountable. This is what human law constructs do. But we don't see people in society today in these cities that are protesting lining up to pour gasoline over themselves and light themselves on fire. We don't see that. We don't see people lining up on these protests to have themselves jump off the Empire State Building or ingest radioactive toxins. Because there's no loopholes for that. There's no avoiding accountability in those actions. See, when you understand design law, design law does not play favorites. This is why Jesus or God God is not a respecter of persons, meaning it doesn't matter your station or position or your belief systems or your religious affiliations or your church affiliations. It doesn't matter. God's law treats everyone exactly the same. And if you have a, a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim all jump off the Empire State Building, gravity treats them the same. It doesn't matter whether they prayed in the right direction five times that day, whether they have the right hat on their head, whether they were baptized in the right way, it doesn't matter. Gravity treats them all the same. And this is the corruption of religions, that they have all this arbitrary rule-oriented stuff, like some of that stuff matters. It doesn't. I In one of the supermarkets locally recently, I, uh, everybody's wearing masks these days, as you know. And I was going down an aisle with my mask on, and everybody else had their masks on. But this particular supermarket had a little, you know, go this way on this aisle and go that way on the other aisle. And I was going the wrong way on the aisle, and somebody confronted me. <laughs> and they accused me of causing disease, killing people I was accused of. I work at one of the local hospitals, and I see people die because of people like you. And I said, I really feel sad for you that you think that my walking a a direction on an aisle actually makes a difference when everybody's wearing a mask. That same supermarket I was in yesterday or Thursday, and those those aisle uh, directions are gone now. So you can walk any direction. They're gone. They've taken them because everybody's wearing masks. Those aisle directions were put on before the mask requirements when, when they tried to just keep people six feet apart without wearing masks. Okay. Now the masks are on, you don't need the aisle directions. But this is the silliness of people. Rules-oriented people don't understand how reality works. We see this in society constantly, like the people who got tickets at their churches when they sat in their own cars to have an outdoor program, and nobody left their own car. They drove into the parking lot, they all sat in their own cars, and they preached to them on a loudspeaker, and a police officer went from car to car to car to ticket them all because they weren't allowed to meet at church. So the police officer enforcing the law, because it's a rule, is a vector to carry. If anybody did have the virus, that he's a vector now carrying it to everybody else. But we, get, we, we kept the rule because we don't want to pass the virus around. This is the craziness that happens, and it happens in our world, left and right. For those of us who understand design law, you can look at this world and you can see the stuff that is just completely crazy, delusional, as one of our authors wrote here a while ago. Wendell, closing comment. I just 
know the humorous comment about someone who was in a grocery store and he was going the wrong way, and they, they, the, someone came up to me and said, Didn't you not see the arrows? And he looked at me and said, I didn't see the Indians. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, sadly, that would be considered a politically incorrect statement in our society today. And that would be enough to have them arrested and taken to jail. So you have to be careful about that. All right. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are not an arbitrary rule maker. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you. You don't run your universe like Satan claims or like any of these governments on earth are doing. Lord, the final events are coming. They're coming soon, and you need a people ready. We pray to be part of that group, and we pray that your spirit will settle our hearts and minds and give us great wisdom and discernment and great ability to share this illuminating message of your methods and character of love in a world that desperately needs it, that's being drawn in with fear on every side to become more and more aggressive toward those that are different than them. Let us have a message that brings us back into unity and oneness with you as we put Jesus in the center. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.